that in the last 150 years, one of the more controversial issues that has faced the Christian church has been about the phrase, ordinary days. Uh, the problem has, has been about understanding these earliest Genesis narratives, especially in light of kind of developing scientific theories about the origins of the universe and of humanity. But, but, look, no matter how you understand the days of Genesis 1, actually, I think these days are certainly not ordinary. The Bible uh, tells us actually of extraordinary days in which the whole universe comes into existence and God works over the earth to make it fit for humanity to live on it so that we might be his covenant creatures. Every Christian should find magnificent and even extraordinary days in the first chapters of Scripture. Still, I I, I imagine that most people who've been a Christian for any length of time come to this text with some pretty specific questions. Uh, But my goal in this series is not to rehash those disputes, but but to listen with fresh ears to to the rich and wonderful message of these chapters that, that tell us a great deal about our relationship with God and his purposes for us. And so, so this series intends to reclaim this portion of scripture as about God and about the bearing that God intends his inspired to word to have upon the way that we live with him. I, I want to remind us God inspired the the book of Genesis to to have the pointed purpose of of addressing God's people as we relate to him. I I want to show how even the first verses of Genesis are, are loaded with theological riches that tell us about God and what it means to be his servants. So the main point today from Genesis 1, 1 and 2, is that God's people need to remember that God is entirely different from us, which ought to fill us with hope and wonder. God's people need to remember that God is entirely different from us, which ought to fill us with hope and wonder. So the first thing we're going to think about is that Genesis is about God, which... May not seem that surprising of a point, but I think it's worth our reflection. But Genesis is about God. This, this first point then dives into the issue of, of how we should think about the book of Genesis as a text inspired by God for his people's benefit. Right, right from the outset then, we should recognize a few things that, that ought to focus the way that we think about this text. Okay, so, so first, the, the traditional and conservative position uh, is that Moses was the fundamental author of Genesis to Deuteronomy, so the, the first five books of our Bible. So if the Exodus event took place 
roughly around 1500 BC, then Genesis and the other four books by Moses were initially composed sometime shortly after that event of, of God leading his people out of Egypt and making a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. Now, that may not seem that interesting, but but actually, it has some real significance for you, for all of us. So right, as God brought Israel out of slavery, he inspired this book to give them the historical background, the prologue to the relationship that he was formalizing with them as his people at Sinai. So... God inspired this text as an address to his covenant people to tell them about life with him. And that makes this book really profound. This book is about knowing who God is and what his relationship with his covenant people is supposed to be. Even from the first moments that the universe existed. God did not inspire this text to take on the whole world, nor the the scientific community at large. Even though this text records the beginnings of the world, it was not written at the beginning of the world. It was written to his people as he called them into existence as his people. And that that entails two applications, I mean, of this whole book, but even as we focus on these first narratives. So first, the first application here is that given what has interested modern people about the opening chapters of Genesis, it, it's easier for us to overlook that it speaks to us about how we are supposed to live with God. We too readily think that we understand Genesis 1 and that it is a rebuttal to people out there about what they believe. Right? We acknowledge as Christians readily that God's word is inexhaustible in its riches and application And I think sometimes we forget that about these chapters. We think we've kind of pinned down all the details and now we can just move on. This stuff is worth your endless reflection about what it tells you about God and how to walk with him. So this book was meant to have real bearing upon your life with God. And that means that if I turn this book, even its first chapters, in, into an ongoing argument with the outside world, more than an address to me as a member of God's covenant people, then I have fundamentally distorted the meaning of God's word in these chapters. Regardless of implications that may be valid for other issues, this text is still foremost a call to you to know more about your relationship with your covenant Lord. 
Our study in this book, then, cannot focus primarily on arguing with the outside world if we are to be faithful to God's intended meaning in his scripture. Second, all right, second application. Since this book is an address to God's covenant people about our relationship with God, then our studies, even in the first chapters of this book, have to focus on God himself and our relationship with him. So, so to put a, a fine point on this one, right? If, if my attention, as I study Genesis, is at all more on the creation than on the creator, then I have again fundamentally distorted God's intended meaning of his word. Right? To highlight, to highlight from scripture the world more than God is to abuse these portions of scripture. These chapters primary point is about, which says nothing about secondary points, but these chapters primary point is about something so much more exciting than rocks, geosystems, and, and how old the, they are. These chapters are about the majesty of God. And how he made us to be in relationship with him. The big takeaway from this is that you need to read Genesis like it matters for your everyday life as a Christian before the face of God. This book is not fodder for debate, but God's word to his people we, we see then that Genesis is about God, which means we have to read this book for how God intended it to address his covenant people. That brings us to our second point, right? What, what is the first thing that this book would say to us as his people? Uh, and so our second point is that God is different than us. Or from us. I guess God is different from us. Uh, so I, I want to highlight here how, how even the first two verses of the Bible contain some of the most exciting theology you could ever know. Right? This point starts to zero in on, on these two verses so, so that we might learn some essential truths about our God that, that are embedded even in the first sentences of Scripture. Right. So, it, it, I mean, if, if when you're writing, if your first statements are supposed to grab your audience, if we're paying attention, man, this stuff does the trick. Right. So Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right, that, I mean, that should, right there, tell you. The first focus of Scripture is God. He's the first actor. He's the first topic. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God 
was hovering over the face of the waters. So, yeah, keep 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 verse one in front of you if if you've got it there, because this is an amazing statement that that is far richer than we might gather if we don't ponder these words deeply. So uh, there are a few ways that pe- people have uh, interpreted kind of the first <clears throat> couple of phrases. Um, yeah, so some people, some people claim that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth <clears throat> is a summary statement of the whole series of creation events covering everything that happens through chapter 2, verse 3. So this, uh, you know, they're saying uh, that God created the heavens and the earth is encapsulating everything that happens that the rest of this chapter spells out as six days of, of creation. Here's the thing. This understanding in, in, entails that the first statement of God creating the heavens and the earth was not a, a first distinct act. Okay, this is not a different action that God does in this reading. And the problem is most people who take this view acknowledge that it implies that Genesis does not reveal how the material universe came into existence. Leaving the door open to suggest, you know, perhaps God was just interacting with with pre-existent, maybe even eternal physical matter. Right, So something else besides God existed from eternity. That view, uh, even, even though it's become popular, even in evangelical writers, uh, in my assessment, isn't good theologically, uh, but even, even if you can avoid the theological stuff, I, I don't think it does justice to the Hebrew grammar, which I will not burden you with the details of. But the the other major interpretation, which I believe is the correct one, is that this statement that God created the heavens and the earth was the first distinct act that God did in making the universe. It took place before the main thrust of the narrative really gets going with the, the events of, of day one in verse three. So, so right... Yeah, what's what's up with that? So verse 1 and 2 occurs emphatically before day 1 of creation that is described in verse 3. And verse 1 and 2 tells us that God made the physical stuff of the whole universe. God's first creative act in verses 1 and 2 is, moreover, loaded with theological richness. So most crucially, to to bring this back down to earth, uh, yeah, literally and figuratively, I guess, in this topic, uh, most crucially, verse 1 signals that God is essentially different from you. There is a a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creation. God is different and distinct from the universe and everything in it in so many ways 
there was not any physical matter, any physical stuff of any sort or any of the dimensions, height, width, space, time, that, that belong to creation before God brought the heavens and the earth into existence. And, before you think I'm going way out there, <laughs> far from being an arcane philosophical point, that underscores God's supreme majesty. God did not need anything to make the universe be like what it is right now. God God created out of nothing. And that phrase, out of, out of nothing, is something you should write on your heart and bang into your brain. God created out of nothing. I mean, memorize that phrase, out of nothing. Out of nothing. The reason why that phrase, out of nothing, is so important is because this phrase right, distinguishes the Christian worldview from all the others. Whatever you think of of the other events in the creation story might well have bearing upon the way that Christians need to look at the world, but verses 1 and 2 are fundamental in thinking Christianly about the origins of the universe. Right? Other scripture tells us this, it supports this interpretation that God created out of nothing. Right? Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Romans four seventeen, As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations. He's talking about Abraham. I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So right. All, what's the conflict here with, with unbelief? Okay, so all the way back to ancient Greek philosophy and lingering into uh, modern, unbelieving, naturalistic, mind the qualifiers, science, is the assumption that the universe's physical stuff, the physical matter of the universe, has been there forever. It's eternal in their mindset. The, the belief is that the stuff that composes our world, our universe, has just always been there. Perhaps it looked different or has been through various cycles. Whatever the case, paganism and modernity think that the physical parts of, the, of creation have been there forever. And that is the, the, the presupposition that unbelieving philosophy and naturalistic science 
uses to deny the existence of God. Right? So if the reasoning runs like this, if, if matter has been there forever and, and nothing exists except physical matter, well, you know, and our job is in science is the things, uh, in, we reason from the things in the physical universe and, and yet we can't find God. He must not be there. But that oversteps the bounds of what creatures can investigate. What we are supposed to do, even in science. Right? The, the job of creaturely investigation of the natural world is to, is to look at the natural realm by repeatable, observable experiments. But God isn't contained in nature. Right? God is supernature. He made the material universe and he enters it, but he does not exist in the same way as it. He exists as creator where we exist as creature. There is no repeatable, observable experiment that can, that can prove God isn't there. Just because you can't find something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Foremost, in this case, because experimentation cannot go past the bounds of nature. It is a massive mistake to think that only that which exists like we do can exist at all. Scripture, though, says that God created out of nothing. The, the, un, the universe began at some point and God was the one who made it. Which means we are creatures in his hands. God stands outside the physical universe and is not subject to our probing and investigation. Which is exactly, right? When we think about the Bible, that is exactly why He has spoken to his people climactically in the sun and markedly by the scripture. What we could not instigate because we are mere creatures. God has told us. And that's a beautiful thing. We ought to. So God is different than us. And we ought to rejoice that he has revealed himself to us. Which brings us to our last point. God's timeless dependability. So, okay, we, we've thought about the, the first sort of big premise in these first two verses that God made everything out of nothing. Uh, and the other implication here is that not only did God create physical space, but he created time. So verses 1 and 2 tell us about when God created time and space. We creatures are the ones, whether we like it or not, who experience the passing of moments and years. God doesn't feel the ticking on of seconds. 
There is no succession of moments in God's being. Now, okay, uh, let's take a step back from that because I know that that's dense. So imagine you have gone to a football stadium, which is probably a feat of your imagination at this point in world history. Uh, and you are there before the game begins. So at this point, the scoreboard should have a, a big timer on it to, to keep track uh, of progression of time within this football game. However you understand that. Uh, but right now, that timer is not ticking away any of the seconds, right? The, the game hasn't started. So we've got this place where time should be recorded and, and something that will record it, but it hasn't started. So as you look at the field prior to the game's start, you know that time isn't passing on the field officially. The clock is is frozen for everything happening in that stadium. And moreover, the clock progresses when it does only in reference to what happens in the stadium. This clock is the countdown for what's going on in in this realm. And the point uh, of that illustration is that the timer of reality, the, the universal succession of moments, applies only to created things. And it did not start to count the moments until God made the heavens and the earth. There was no such thing as time before Genesis 1-1. And that might be hard. I get that. I know that. That might be mind-bending. But man, this is so and has real relevance for your life. And so if you've kind of zoned out, come back to... No. Because uh, yeah. it is an amazing thing that God is outside time. God does not experience the succession of our moments. He does not enter into or pass through seasons. And he does not age. God is eternal. And in sort of technical theological terms, God alone is eternal, meaning that he does not experience time. We might be everlasting, meaning we've come into existence and at least our soul will never cease to exist in some capacity to experience an endless ongoing progression of seconds and minutes and hours. But God is not everlasting like that. He is eternal, different from us. No time passes for or in God. And that should really matter to you. right? God does not experience time, which means, here, here's the payoff. I've made a big deal of this. Here's the payoff. He does not change because he doesn't experience time. And that is the sure foundation of your hope and your ability to trust our God. God cannot change because time doesn't pass for him. Right? It's kind of popular right now, even in evangelicalism and, and even in some reformed place circles to reject this doctrine that God is impassable. They, they, 
God is, we say, we confess that God is not subject to the change of emotions. And people don't like that. That means he's so much different from me. He doesn't, he doesn't exist in the, the change of feelings like I do. And I, I really want a God like me. Here's the thing. That's dangerous. And it's actually not the God you want. And here's, yeah. You don't want God to be subject to changing emotions. Because God will not change his mind about how he loves you. And that is not something we want to give up to make God more like me. God will not change his mind about his love for you because James 1.17 says, God does not change like shifting shadows. God's eternality and unchangingness means that when God issued the gospel promise to Abraham that those who trust in his promises by faith will be rescued, it is impossible for that promise ever to be overturned. And that's a beautiful thing. That God creates means you aren't God. God is different from and supreme to us. But that should fill us with hope and with wonder. It should fill us with hope and wonder. Where else would we turn to, to find such security and dependability? The, the God who is beyond us, has voluntarily condescended to know us and make us his people. For for those of us who live this side of humanity's swan dive into sin, it, it is of inestimable comfort that since the time that the gospel promise rang out in Genesis 3.15 was formalized by promise and by covenant to Abraham to its fulfillment in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It has been guaranteed because God doesn't change. God's transcendent and immutable nature upholds and secures our ability to know, to know and to trust that those sinners who flee to Christ by faith for rescue will, will be received into God's family. Our unchanging and sovereign God has promised that. Let's pray. Father God, the scripture teaches difficult things, things that are beyond our ability to understand them fully. And how else could it be when the scripture teaches us about you, our incomprehensible, unfathomable, majestic, wonderful, all glorious God. And we pray 
that you would make your glory writ large across our hearts this morning. Even these things that are hard for us to understand and to follow, even when we don't have concept, when all we have is the grammar handed down to us by the ages of your church, help us to treasure these things. Help us to be reminded that when we can't understand you, that's because you're better than we are. You're greater. And our God is full of mystery. And that provides us with the opportunity to reflect to, on, on you, to understand you more, to treasure you more with eternity before us. We cannot exhaust what we can learn about you. Our God is not boring, but you are enough to thrill us until forever. And we pray that you would impress that upon us just now and help remind us that your attributes are part of what makes your gospel so amazing. That we can trust the promises that you grant us in Jesus Christ because of who you are. We pray that you would be working in in hearts now to treasure you all the more. And if they have not yet, to treasure you through the gospel. We pray that the gospel would be clear in, in hearts, minds, even for the first time just now. Even as we have thought more about God and who you are than we have explained the cross Lord, your character can bring these things home about how much we need reconciliation to the great and wonderful God. And so we pray that you would do that for us even now. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.